Hello, and welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. My name is Andrew, and on today's podcast, we have our guest, Lucy, the founder of Soberistas. Soberistas is a worldwide community of friendly, non-judgmental people, all helping each other to stay sober. Lucy has some valuable insights to share with all of us regarding recovery and ongoing sobriety. You can learn more about Soberistas on their website at Soberistas.com. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy this discussion between Lucy and Vimalasara. Lucy, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast. It's absolutely wonderful for me. It's just been a great delight just to see this uh, plethora of of women's or, or, or programs which are aimed at women for recovery. And I know that you have founded an organization called Soberistas. So could you tell me what Soberistas is? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, first of all, uh, and good to be here. Um, Soberistas is a social network site that I founded in 2012, which is aimed at women, although we have got a few men on there now, but it's it's 90% women. Um, And it's basically just a safe place where people can speak or write online anonymously if they wish um, and share their journeys thoughts feelings about alcohol sobriety support each other um, and connect with other people who are in a similar place I suppose similar mindset as themselves and what made you set up Soberistas what 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 was the impetus so um, the impetus was basically my own relationship with alcohol was pretty destructive um and culminated in me uh waking up in hospital in 2011 um in the middle of the night after a particularly bad binge which um i had no kind of recollection of of what happened and just woke up in a in a and e um in sheffield in england where i live um and was basically terrified and realised that I could never drink again. So I'd, I'd kind of always had this knowledge that I'd got a destructive relationship with alcohol, but never really, I suppose that was my rock bottom, I'd never really had kind of as much of a wake-up call as that. So I spent about a year and a half sober, extremely miserable, very lonely, um, struggling really, you know, a great deal to sort of adjust to life without alcohol, but knowing that I couldn't drink anymore. Um, and for various reasons, didn't want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, kind of not finding anything that appealed to me. So in that time, I suppose the idea for Soberistas was born because I kind of realised that there was a bit of a gap for that grey area drinking, you know, people who are not sort of on the park bench, but people who are definitely not in control of their alcohol. Let's pause you there because there's lots of um, interesting things that you said and I'd really love to unpack. Firstly, you you described that your drinking was very destructive. So before you got to that point of waking up in A&E accident and emergency, as we say in in the UK, um, what, um, what was it that 
that made your drinking destructive? What did that look like? Um, well, probably two, I think two factors that really, that really made it as, um, well, maybe three factors that made it as terrible as it was. First one was that I have never had an off switch. So right from the age of 13, when I started drinking, I just had no idea when I was drunk, no idea when to stop. So I would always just drink to the point of passing out, blacking out. Um, secondly, it didn't always happen. So it was quite um, like a Russian roulette scenario. So sometimes I would drink and it was okay. Other times I would drink and it was an absolute catastrophe. So because it was not consistently bad, I was always able to kid myself, I suppose, that it was okay and that the bad things that happened were just one-offs or, you know, unique incidents for whatever reason, but that that wasn't the norm, but it, it really was a pattern. You know, when I look back now, it was quite obviously a pattern. And then the third reason was that I got divorced and became a single mum when I was 27. So every every other weekend, my daughter would go and stay with her dad. Every night I was on my own, couldn't go out in between her being at her dad's. So I, became, I was lonely, I was stressed, and I completely switched, you know, at that point to using wine to self-medicate, which was a disaster, really, for me, considering I couldn't, you know, I didn't have an off switch. Thank you. And then you you said that you know after waking up in A and E, you just knew you you couldn't drink anymore. How did you know that? How because many people can wake up in you know accident and emergency and think that's it. I'm never going to drink again. And then two weeks later, they're back. I think. I, I mean, I was I was absolutely terrified I'd never had anything like that happen to me before although lots of you know pretty horrific things had happened when I when I was drunk but I'd never had anything quite as bad as that happen um and I think you know fear got me a long way I really did the, the penny dropped I suppose and I really did kind of acknowledge that I could have died you know very easily I could have died I was I, somebody found me on the pavement um sidewalk outside my apartment where I lived and I was vomiting I was unconscious I was on my own it was the middle of the night and they called an ambulance and I suppose you know that it was that I'd never been in that kind of position before that was so dangerous and so frightening um and it got me through that fear got me through the first six months to a year of not drinking before you know it got me past the cravings, past the initial sort of recovery period so that I could be safe in terms of triggers and, you know, kind of being tempted to drink. And then I was able to work on on all the underlying reasons as to why I was drinking in the way that I was. So how did you stop in that first year? I mean, you said that it was very lonely and miserable that first 15 to 18 months. How did you stop and why was it so lonely and miserable? Um, it was lonely and miserable, I think, because I was really cross that I couldn't drink anymore <laughs> as I saw it. I was very angry that everybody else, and this was obviously, this is not true, but it was my perception at the time, everybody else could drink and I couldn't. And I was really, I was angry um, and, and annoyed, really, I think, and upset and grieving for that relationship that I'd had with alcohol I, I did genuinely or I thought I did at the time genuinely loved wine and drinking and and I couldn't see the point of anything 
I couldn't see the point of holidays, Christmas, you know, a romantic meal with a partner. It all just seemed completely kind of pointless if I couldn't have a drink. Um, but I got through it mainly by running, um, just ran a lot, uh, wrote, started writing my blog, connected with other people. People started commenting on my blog that I wrote before I set Soberistas up um, and just didn't drink, you know, just just did not drink. And, and it was those things. Also, I have to say, I did go to my local Buddhist centre and, and found out about meditation because I, I had this very busy mind and couldn't relax and had never known how to switch off apart from using alcohol. So I did meditation, running, writing, connection would say were the sort of four pillars of of getting through that first 18 months well done that's kind of absolutely amazing (laughs) and you said yeah I mean it is to to just do that completely on your own and I can really see that writing this this blog you know uh what's part of that and you know doing meditation and and actually it's interesting you said that you had to deal with the underlying stuff after. What were those underlying things that you had to work with? Um, chronically low self-esteem. I think I, uh, I, I, you know, as well as drinking destructively, I'd also had an eating disorder for years. I'd used drugs. I'd had a lot of very destructive relationships with, you know, not very nice people. So when I kind of unpicked it all and took away the booth that was the you know that was covering it all up there was a lot of stuff under there I was I was very I felt very broken really um and and so I went to see a counsellor I did a I did a lot of therapy uh that I've that's been ongoing since you know I don't kind of consider myself at a point of you know being fixed I just see it as a sort of lifelong process of of kind of trying to get to the root cause of things but definitely that's that low self-esteem the self-loathing you know really kind of chronic self-destruction was was the main thing that I needed to fix at the time or or at least you know get me to a better point. And where did that low self-esteem come from what what was the cause of this low self-esteem? I think it's um I think it's sort of a combination of of something that was there to start with, but then when we drink and then use drugs and then get into destructive relationships, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So there was definitely, you know, strands of that before I started down that road, but then behaving in that way, doing those things, kept reinforcing it and pushing it further and further down. So I would do things that, you know, I, I hated myself for, act in ways that were just completely inauthentic and, you know, I would completely regret the next day. And doing that over and over and over again for 22 years obviously damages your self-esteem, you know, and I think I already had low self-esteem to start with. That kind of confirmed it and made it a lot worse. But on the plus side, since I've stopped drinking, it's all come back. So it was definitely, <laughs> you know, it was a spiral. And I can see that now. kind of nine years on, it was definitely sort of downward spiral. I mean, you said it's always been there. I mean, you weren't born with low self-esteem. What were some of the things that were happening in your childhood to contribute to that? I don't, uh, to be honest, I had nothing in my childhood. And, I, and it wasn't until I was about 13, 14. It was my teenage years, I think. I think I had a, a, a pretty steady childhood that was 
you know, stable and, and fine. Can I ask you, can I ask you about your childhood? Yeah, my yeah, yeah. completely blissful childhood, you know, I can't, really lovely parents, nice sister, good friends, nice home, nothing at all. I was quite... Are you the, are you the, the youngest or oldest? Youngest. What I would really say when I look back on it, though, is that I think I've always been a perfectionist. I've always been a, put a lot of pressure on myself to be a high achiever. So I, I think, you know, having an eating disorder when I was in my teens was kind of typical of, of that. So who put pressure on you to be be a high achiever? What expectations? I don't know. I don't know if I put it on myself. I'm not sure. I am. I mean, it's really it's 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 it because it, it's not saying that you your your parents were bad, but we you know for somebody who had an eating disorder, who picked up alcohol at the age of thirteen, then something there was something that you weren't getting. Yeah, there was something, your- and I, and and I don't. I think part of it was a. A rebellious streak, you know, I've always had a kind of rebellious streak and I definitely kind of at 13 wanted to be a rebel. I wanted to be with the cool kids and, you know, hanging out at night, you know, on the streets drinking and and then got into the rave scene and did a lot of kind of recreational drugs. And But then that gets reinforced when your friendship group is, is the same, you know. So I only hung around then with people who were taking drugs, who were drinking heavily, who you know, who kind of lived that, that sort of chaotic life. So it became normal. Did both your parents work at all? Or yeah, did, both did teachers, have- yeah, both both secondary teachers. Oh, they're both secondary, yeah. they're both secondary school teachers. I'm smiling yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps, High achieving. Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I think, I think you had some pressure on you to do well as yeah, teachers. Yeah. And also, I mean, in a way, of course, you know, they would have both had to, to work. But then, I mean, that means that they wouldn't have been fully there for, for two children if they were. No, that's that's true, you know, which is a tough one, isn't it? And I think having yeah. kind of, yeah, two working yeah. parents who, yeah. who, who yeah. you know, teaching's a hard, it's a, it's a job sure. with long hours, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. 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 So again, so I mean, I think it's really important because sometimes we really think we're born with this. It's always been like that. And actually to actually and then we're blaming ourselves as an impediment in us. And actually what we can just see with an unpacking that, that actually there was pressure on you as a young person. How do you deal with that and that adaptation and, and you know, rebelling? against that the yeah, expectation definitely probably you know had played its part I would say yeah mm, yeah yeah no thank you for that yeah because it's really important for for our listeners to to hear this and also I'd really like you to say something about the eating disorder because we find that so many people who um you know come into recovery who've got addictions eating is one of those things how does that manifest for you yeah, it is. I think the two things are definitely intertwined, especially for women, hugely. And there's lots of people on, you know, loads of women on soberistas who who struggle with both. Um, and, I, and I suppose for me, it started at 15 when I started taking amphetamines and suddenly had no appetite for three days and lost half stone <laughs> in a week <laughs> and thought, oh. <laughs> You know that's that's interesting. So you know that taking those kinds of drugs um, 
again that as you know the culture at the time the kind of the female role models at the time the look of of what was in you know fashionably attractive at the time the super thin waif like model i do remember feeling you know a pressure again to look a certain way uh but it was but the scene that i was in the drugs that i was taking i think definitely kind of played its part because it, it was it's an appetite suppressant, you know, hugely. And then once you start losing weight and people say, oh, you look good, you know, you've lost loads of weight. And, you know, then it becomes quite an addictive thing. And again, it's a control thing. It's, you know, when you're in a chaotic environment or you feel as if you're in a chaotic environment and you've not got any control, that's the one thing that you can control. And that is, you know, that sort of high achiever, the perfectionist again, it's quite, it was very typical of, you know, of, of the kind of person I am, I suppose, at that age. Yeah, and I'm the rave scene is is it's a very particular rave scene in in the UK, and uh, definitely with the speed, the black bombers, the anamphetamine, yeah. But well done. I mean, you know, your journey, well done. And and another thing that you had said was that AA was it wasn't for you. What was it that AA wasn't for you? Well, I think you know. First of all, I would say that that I have you know, nothing against AA and there are lots of people who it does work fantastically well for and I'm full of admiration for anybody who can walk into an AA meeting for the first time and be brave enough to do that. And I think one of the reasons it didn't appeal to me was because I wasn't that brave. I didn't want to go into a room full of strangers and put my hand up and say I was an alcoholic. I was absolutely full of shame. I was terrified of bumping into somebody that I knew. Um... And apart from that, I would say the practical barriers. I was a single parent. I lived on my own with my 12-year-old. So going to a meeting regularly would have been pretty difficult without having to tell whoever it was who was babysitting where I was going. So, and that, which was another reason why I set Sobristas up, actually, that kind of awareness that for some people going to a physical meeting isn't possible. Um, but yeah, I think the most probably the the biggest reason was the, was the shame um and the worry of seeing somebody that I knew I mean I was terrified of, of that I was so ashamed you know I just didn't want to talk I didn't want to talk to anybody about it face to face what was that shame when you say that shame what was it what's that was waking up in hospital you know mm. in the morning Covered in my own sick, having absolutely no idea how I'd got there, you know, being a being a mum, you know, having a, and then finding myself in that situation, it, you know, I was multi, I was absolutely mortified. It was, you know, although now it was the best thing that could have happened with regards to my drinking career, but at the time it was, you know, brutal. <laughs> in terms sure, of, I hear that. So was, yeah. yeah. What what's been the impact on your daughter? Would you say um, you having an issue with alcohol? What's been the impact? Well, I mean, to be honest, she's most of the drinking I did was when she was at a dad's. You know, the heavy mm. drinking. The kind, so she mm. didn't actually see me sort of drunk very yeah. often, but she is well aware of of the issues. And I and I've always said that I think that the consequences of my drinking when she was little were not so much me kind of marauding around the house and drunk, but the after effects of drinking. So the day after, being depressed, 
no energy, can't be bothered to do anything, snappy, you know, that kind of low-level depression when you're drinking a bottle of wine every night, which, you know, which is what I was pretty much doing. And um, that definitely had an effect on her. But we've, you know, we've spoken, I've spoken to her an awful lot about it. She was 12 when I stopped drinking. Um, and she's, and I feel that the, that it's been balanced by the last nine years and soberistas and the fact that she's seen me grow and develop into a positive role model as a parent because she sees me looking after myself, she sees me fit and healthy, I'm not checking out all the time with alcohol or drugs, we've got a very honest and open relationship and she knows, you know, she knows all about the kind of demons that I had in my younger years, but um, but she's got a very healthy awareness of alcohol and she doesn't mm. drink a great deal at all. You know, she'll have the odd drink here and there, but she's not a drinker as mm. I was. And that that has, you know, helped me come to terms with how the first few years of her life mm. were with me as a drinker because I think, you know, it's put her off. I think she's learned the hard way mm. just mm. exactly what damage alcohol can you know, does anybody else in your family drink at all? Um, not much. My partner doesn't drink at all. Uh, he's just one of those people who just doesn't like alcohol. Bizarre. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it never has done, never drunk. I know, I know. Those people just really irritate you, don't they? That's not it. Not, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, my mum and dad, funnily enough, stopped drinking when I set soberistas up, although they were never kind of really problematic drinkers they did drink a couple of glasses of wine every night maybe share a bottle of wine every night over dinner or they've completely cut alcohol out sort of real so that was a norm so in your family it was a norm to it have. wasn't not when I was little but, but yeah. I think when I got to a, sort of my mid-teens I think that's probably when they started down that yeah. road of sort of mm. glasses a, a night and yeah but they they mm. kind of realized I think they saw it with a, with a different lens when I set soberists up and and realised, you know, it's not actually all it's all it's made out to be. Yeah, it's great that you had the had the support of of your yeah. parents. It's fantastic, actually. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Very, very lucky. Um, yeah. But let's go to Soberistas because, in a way, you're a bit of a trailblazer actually setting up something online. I mean, online has gone mad now. Everything is online. But actually, you set up a recovery program, resources online in 2012. Um, how how was that? Did you get much interest? or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think something that – it didn't really exist, which is why, you know, which is why I set it up because I, I kind of felt like there really needed to be somewhere like that online. There needed to be a safe online space where people could talk completely confidentially to each other and feel, you know, as if they weren't being judged. And that, that was kind of the big, the big thinking behind it, really, a place because I was so ashamed. I wanted somewhere where I could talk to the people who got it, who knew I wasn't a horrible person just because I, you know, because I had that kind of behavioural pattern going on. But um, but no, nothing else really existed like that, not in the same way and certainly not aimed at women, I don't think. You know, the fact that it was specifically set up for women um, did make it pretty unique. So we got 
absolutely, you know, loads and loads of interest from media all over the world, you know, everybody, all the big kind of media organisations, TV programmes, magazines, newspapers, all kind of did a, an interview on and a piece on Sobristers and and that was brilliant because it, it obviously raised awareness and helped people know that it existed. So, so what do Sobaristas offer people? Well, primarily um, it's a blogging site, forums and, and a blogging site. Um, but we are, Sobaristas is, a, is an amazing community of which I don't take any credit for because it's the people who belong to it that you know that make it what it is but there is an amazing sense of community on Soberistas and people are incredibly supportive incredibly uh altruistic and will kind of really go the extra mile to support each other complete strangers who they don't know at all you know who they know are struggling and and there is this vibe on there of just total sort of non-judgment absolute love and welcoming and friendliness and and that is you know that's it's really special it's a really lovely place so it's basically just somewhere you can write you know in in its basic function you can write on the forums or you can write a blog or you can speak in a chat room um but it's the community i think that people love it for it's that sense of community that people get from it does it cost money to be part of soberistas it does cost money, uh, but we, uh, you know, we don't put the put the cost up very much. If we can possibly help it, it covers the the running costs. Uh, so it's fourteen pounds for three months or thirty nine pounds for a year. I don't know what that translates as in Canadian dollars, but it's it's about fifty two American dollars for the year. Yeah, so it'll be about seventy five dollars Canadian. Yeah. So, yeah, basically just to cover the running costs, the admin costs, obviously our salaries, it's our full-time job, um, and and the software, you know, the kind of operational side of it and the social media side of it and our writers, we have feature articles on there, so we pay those and anything, you know, any, any, anything like that that we, that we need to cover the cost of, but we do keep it as low as possible. And what in in terms of the well, actually, first of all, how many people do you have as part of Sobristas, and which part of the world are they? Well, all coming from? I mean, there's there's a lot of registered members. Not all of them are subscribers, so you can sub, so you can register, get a week free, and then you don't have to take out. You know, so lots of people do that and then don't take out a subscription. So there are sixty five thousand registered members, um, probably about. I think about at the moment five thousand subscribers, um, and mostly in the UK. Some in America, twenty percent in America and Canada, and five percent Australia, and then the rest of the world make up the other proportion. And then, um, what about in terms of gender? Like, do you is there space for? transgender non-binary yeah I mean, it's, it's to be honest I set it up with with sort of me in mind so when I set it up in my head I was thinking single parent single mum wine you know can't wine o'clock can't get out at night so that was kind yeah. of obviously sort of, of course. the creative the content was driven by what would appeal to mm. me but but we I mean it's very open and very 
inclusive. So, you know, I don't think I, there's certainly nobody who's not, who, there is certainly no one who isn't welcome. So about 10% mm. are men. Sometimes I get the email from people saying, am I allowed to join? Is it just for women or, you know, mm. but, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's whoever the, the only defining characteristic that I've always maintained you need to have is that you want to resolve your destructive relationship with alcohol. That's it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And diversity, are you aware of, you know, uh, what that diversity is? Do you have many um, BAME as we, as we say in England, black, Asian, minority? We ethnic? don't have the statistics because when we ask people to um, fill out the registration form so the you know when you the registration details when you first register with the site it's basically mm. just area or country where you mm. live um name age i think that's it so we don't have and because it's anonymous and that's part of its appeal mm. you know some people do show the photos some people reveal who they are but most people don't and most mm. people most people who actually use the site don't even write or comment. I think an awful lot of people who use the site just read because they find it motivational and inspirational. So because of that anonymity, no, we don't. Yeah, fantastic. So the only thing you have are just emails and that's that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and where they live, you know, the location. Mm. So that we do know, we do know demographically where they are, um, you know, geographically rather, I should say, where they are. But and do you have any data on on the impact, like you know how how it's impacted those people who have joined Soberistas? Has it helped them stop their drinking? Do you have any tracking at all? Yes, we do. We've had a we've done a couple of. Uh, of our own surveys and we've had another we've had an external research study well we've had a few external research studies actually in soberistas from mostly from kind of postgraduate you know doctorates but also by the university of southampton who did an external study on it which is in the british medical journal um no it's not it's in the oxford journals um and yeah they are they've all come back with the same figures, which is basically about 35% of people who are on Soberistas for a year stop drinking completely. 9% report that they have dramatically reduced their alcohol consumption in that year. So about a third stop drinking completely. That's a pretty, that's a very high stat, actually. Mm -hmm. And do you know, is it just that they've just been with Soberistas or have they been going to perhaps AA or a Buddhist no, recovery the one, program? The ones in the, those figures are people who have just been using Soberistas. But that being said, we do have a lot of members who do do other, you know, smart recovery or AA, and they use a kind of combination of different communities or groups. Well, that's fantastic. That's a very good uh, percentage, 35%. Just, yeah, well done. Yeah. So just um, what, what, what would you say to somebody, uh, a young woman or, or a single mother? And it's great, of course, that we come from such different backgrounds and actually, yeah, single mothers who are struggling. Let's talk, let's talk just to single mothers who are struggling you know, with children and they're drinking, what would you say, what would advice, would, advice would you give them? I would say first of, first and foremost, 
that despite the temptation of drinking to get through that challenging period of your life, I can speak with absolute conviction that it makes everything worse. <laughs> and I wish that I hadn't drunk my way through that divorce and, and the first few years of being a single parent because it caused so many more problems. And I think if I'd have felt the pain and gone through the process of, of recovering from that divorce without alcohol, I would have had a couple of years of immense you know, pain processing and then I would have been all right. But because I drank my way through it, I prolonged that period for eight years and became increasingly more depressed, increasingly more anxious, um, and, yeah, and, and really kind of held myself back massively and didn't help my situation, you know, in terms of my daughter or, you know, any of it. It was all, it was all made worse. But it was it was the temptation of being lonely, of being in the house on my own every night. I didn't know how else to kind of self medicate. It was it was very painful and scary, and I didn't know how to deal with those feelings. I think I've got a lot better as I've got older at, at managing emotional pain. You know, you develop strategies when you don't drink or do drugs. I know how to look after myself now and I didn't then so you know you kind of live and learn but I, I would say from my own experience feeling the pain in the first instance is always better you know get through it process it deal with it and move on because drinking just prolongs the agony and what could help what could help people feel that pain you know because people might say well that's okay feeling the pain but what would you suggest what could help therapy or if you didn't have money for therapy what could help well I think community you know whether it's AA or or smart or soberistas or any of the other online communities I think I think belonging to a group of people who you can talk to who completely get it and support you is crucial Exercise for me is is my sort of number one. Meditation and exercise, you know, both massively important for my mental health and my physical health. Um, an awareness that you've got a, a destructive relationship with alcohol, and I think you know, for anybody, we'll we've all seen those quizzes of you know, am I an alcoholic? Have I got a problem with alcohol? If you're even thinking about have I got a problem with alcohol, you almost certainly have, you know. You don't need to do the quizzes. If the thought has entered your head that you've probably, that, you know, I might have a problem with alcohol, you have, because otherwise you wouldn't think that. So it will only get worse. And, I, you know, I think once we've crossed that line, once we've got that dis- destructive relationship with alcohol, it isn't going to go any other way unless you stop drinking. It's only going to get worse. Thank you. And how do people find out about Soberistas? Well, you can sign, you can register for free. So there's no, we don't ask for credit card details. We don't, you know, it's not one of those sites where you have to put your credit card details in and then cancel. You can just join, look around. And I would just say, you know, get on there, read the blogs, see what people are saying, see what it's about, see if it fits. And, and, you know, a really important part of recovery, I think that anybody who's, who's been through it would agree with is that you have to, you have to do it alongside people who you're, who you can relate to, and who who you feel you know like minded um, with. I think you know 
a lot of people talk to me and say that they've been to a a meeting, an AA meeting, and it's not AA per se. It's just that that AA meeting particularly has been people who have, you know, been completely different to them who may have been on the street, who've kind of lost everything. They've, you know, they've really crossed, you know, really kind of gone down that that heavily addicted road and they don't feel as if they can relate to them and so it's put them off and they've thought oh well I haven't got a problem because they're all much worse than me so you know I'm in the wrong place I think finding a group of people who you feel are on the same wavelength as you who are going through the same things and experiences as you is really important wherever you find those people don't do it alone you don't need to do it alone and it's it's much easier doing it with people who are your friends I guess yeah, thank you. Don't do it alone. Those of you who are listening out there, really important um, not to do it alone. In fact, that can be the hardest thing, can't it? Actually asking for help. So is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? Um, let me think. Well, I suppose in terms of in terms of advice, if you are looking to stop drinking and you've reached that point where you do acknowledge you've got a, an issue and you do want to get help, I think finding, as well as finding that community of people that you can relate to, I think, you know, looking at what's going on in your life, looking at the underlying reasons as to why you want to escape your reality, you know, is crucial. And life will get better when you stop drinking it you know inevitably life will get better but I think you have to go through that period of re you know reconfiguring who you are finding out you know all of the you know going over a lot of the stuff that you've been running away from making yourself vulnerable asking for help working through things and then kind of come out the other side that's essential if you're going to get better and not go back to drinking I think so be prepared for a a turbulent ride but know that you'll get to a much much happier and better place once you get to the other side that's fantastic just reminding people that life will get better but be prepared for the turbulent ride because often we have this uh fantasy of what life would be like without the alcohol and we actually know that actually when we remove the alcohol we're still going to have stuff to deal with it's just that bit easier without not using the alcohol is what i say yeah, exactly. like, the same old shit is there it's just that yeah. bit more easier yeah to deal with and work with. strength don't you that emotional resilience and, and you can deal with things in a in a rational way when you don't drink so yeah definitely it gets easier even though the same you know the same issues or challenges will occur you you just handle it better mm-hmm. well i'm i'm really uh thank you so much i'm really looking forward to the day when we can bring some of the powerhouses together people like you holly dawn taryn sharon and esther and others who are leading in the uh, women's um, recovery world. Hopefully we'll get to meet in, in, a, in a building one yeah, day. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today on the Buddhist Recovery Network podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this wonderful conversation between Lucy from Soberistas and Vimla Sara. Again, if you'd like to learn more about Soberistas, you can find them on their website at Soberistas.com. A few things before we go. 
please check out our website, BuddhistRecovery.org, for information regarding our Christmas Eve celebration beginning at 4 p.m. Pacific, as well as our New Year's Eve celebration beginning at noon Pacific and running until 9 p.m., as well as our Academy on January 3rd, with a recovery meeting hosted by Suzanne from Finland. Once again, thanks for joining us and have a wonderful day. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, President of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviors. Our organization is a volunteer-run nonprofit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website, and all our podcasts are free. We also organize a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace.